Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. I'm Matt Goldstone, and today we're studying Psachim Daf Hey Dalid, page 84. On today's Daf, we find the following Mishnah. Hashoveret ha'etzem v'pesach ha'tahor harizel loke arba'im aval ha'motir b'tahor v'hashover b'tamei eno loke arba'im one who breaks the bone of a pure Pesach offering, this person receives 40 lashes. But one who leaves over part of the pure offering, or breaks the bone of an impure Pesach offering, does not receive the 40 lashes. As we mentioned the other day, there is a biblical prohibition on breaking any of the bones of the Korban Pesach. Thus, if one transgresses and does break a bone from a proper pure offering, they receive a punishment. However, if they simply have extra meat and leave it over without eating it, or break the bone of an impure offering, they're not liable for this punishment. The Gemara inquires into the reason why one who leaves over part of the offering does not receive lashes. Bishlama motir b'tahor, detanya, lo totiru mimenu ad boker, vehanotar mimenu ad boker v'gomer. Baha katuv litain ase, achar lo ta'ase, lomar she'en lo the Mishnah makes sense in the case of one who leaves over some of the pure offering, as we learn in the following Baraita. The verse from Exodus reads, Do not leave any of it over to the morning, and the leftovers in the morning should be burned in fire. The verse comes to put a positive commandment after a negative commandment to say that one does not receive lashes. These are the words of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yaakov Omer, Lo min Hashem hu. Zeh? Ella mishum lav Rabbi Yaakov says, this is not the reason. Rather, it's because it's a negative commandment without an action, and people are not whipped for such types of negative prohibitions. Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Yaakov are arguing over the correct understanding of the biblical verse. According to Rabbi Huda, because the verse begins with a prohibition, do not leave any over, but then picks up with a positive commandment, you're required to burn the leftovers, this implies that one does not receive lashes for violating the negative commandment. Presumably, if the verse itself is acknowledging that there will be leftovers, there's an expectation that people will not finish the entire offering. If there's a positive commandment which is based on the improper fulfillment of the negative commandment, then one should not receive lashes for not fulfilling this prohibition. Rabbi Yaakov, by contrast, believes that the reason our Mishnah states this position, that one who leaves over meat from the offering does not get lashes, is not because the biblical verse includes both a prohibition and a positive commandment, but he applies a more general statement that any negative commandment which does not include an action is not punishable by lashes. In our case, leaving something over is passive and not an active action, and because we only whip people for doing an active action, in this case one is exempt. 
Even though both of these rabbis are pointing to the same key verse as the source behind their Mishnah, they are understanding it from two different hermeneutical perspectives that focus on different aspects of the verse. Do we look at the juxtaposition of two different commandments, as Rabbi Huda does, or do we follow Rabbi Yaakov and look at the nature of the particular negative injunction that we're dealing with by itself? This is the part that the Gemara considers clear, at least based on one of the interpretations, but the Gemara continues to ask about the other law in the Mishnah. Ela, shover betameh minalan, da'amarkra, ve'etzam lo bo, bo bekasher velo bepasul. But the case of one who breaks an impure offering and does not receive lashes, what's the biblical source for this? Quote, and you will not break a bone in it, from Exodus 12:46. in it implies in a kosher offering and not in an invalid offering. The Gemara goes on to bring a baraita, which reiterates this position, but also offers an alternative suggestion. Tanu Rabbanan, ve'etzem lo tishbaru bo, bo bekasher velo bepasul. The rabbis taught, and you will not break a bone in it. In it implies in a kosher offering and not in an invalid offering. Rebbe Omer, Using the same verse, but bringing more of it, quote, In one house it will be eaten, and you will not break a bone in it. Any animal which is fit to be eaten has the rule of breaking bones applied to it, while any animal which is not fit to be eaten, the rule of breaking bones does not apply to it. Once again, we have a case of two different ways of deriving a single law from the same verse. Here, the first position focuses on the use of the word bow in it, while the second position of Rebbe looks at the larger context of the verse then applying the prohibition of breaking bones applies to an animal that will be eaten and not an impure or invalid animal. That's the direction he follows. The Gemara continues to ask about the difference between these two positions. My benaihu, what's the difference between them? Amar Rabbi Yermia, Pesach haba ika benaihu. Laman amar kasher, hai pasul. Laman amar ra'ui la'achila, hai nami ra'ui la'achila. Rabbi Yermia said, a korban, a korban Pesach, which is offered in a state of impurity, is the practical difference between them. According to the one who focused on the word bow in the verse, which requires that the animal be kosher, in this case the animal would technically be disqualified. However, according to the latter position, that focuses on whether the animal can be eaten in the case of a korban Pesach brought in impurity, it technically can be eaten, based on an earlier Mishnah which permitted eating a korban Pesach brought in a state of impurity. To step back for a moment, I'd like to consider the approach of the Gemara. At the opening of our Gemara, we said that we understand the reason for not receiving lashes, for leaving over part of an offering, and then we brought two different interpretations of a biblical verse. In this next stage of the Gemara, we say that we're unsure of the biblical basis. The Gemara responds with the verse and one interpretation, but then offers an alternative way of reading the verse. In this instance, Instead of being satisfied with the fact that we have a verse in hand, the Gemara asks what the difference is between the two different ways of interpreting the verse. Now, why didn't we ask this question in the first two ways of reading the other verse? From a traditional learning perspective, we might say that there was no real practical difference between the two earlier positions, or, alternatively, there is such an obvious difference that the Talmud didn't even bother to list it. 
This is based on an approach that looks for consistency and underlying logic between every stage of the Gemara. But from a more academic perspective, we might answer this question otherwise. Both of these two sets of disagreeing biblical interpretations could have had the question applied to them regarding why they are different. However, our Gemara rhetorically frames the discussion toward the direction that the rabbis who constructed the sugiya were interested in pursuing. The former case was not as directly relevant for the line of logic that they wished to pursue, and thus they didn't. Now, while the case at hand may not have much practical ramification for us today, it's interesting to consider those cases where important halakhic positions are the result of the direct interest taken by the Gemara. Contemporary research into the development of the Gemara has shown the ways that rhetorical and other concerns can shape the direction that legal conversations in the Talmud take. In addition, the cases that arise in the Gemara are often taken as the direct basis for later codification literature. Thus, the Talmud and the rabbis who shaped it had an enormous impact on the future direction of Jewish legal practice. And, at times, this may have simply arisen from their interest in a topic, rather than from a decisive effort to establish the law in a particular direction. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.